Rockabye baby, daddy's awake. When he comes home, hard cider he'll swig. When he has swug, he'll fall in a snoo. And down will come Tyler and Tippy Canoe. When men feel a natural pity for another's woes, and when easy and frequent relations bring them together every day, and no susceptible ability divides them. It's easy to see that they'll help one another out when the need arises. When an American calls upon the cooperation of his fellow Americans, they seldom refuse. And I have often seen them offer their assistance spontaneously and enthusiastically. When there's an accident on a public way, people rush to the victim's aid from every direction. If a great and sudden misfortune shall befall a family, a thousand strangers will generously open their purses. Modesty, but numerous, modest but numerous gifts will pour in to alleviate the family's misery. Equality of conditions make men aware of their independence, but at the same time point to their weaknesses. They are free, but vulnerable to a thousand accidents, and experience is not slow to teach them that although they do not usually need the help, the help of others, they almost always inevitably come a time when they cannot do without it. All right, so we are in part seven of this eight-part examination of Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Specifically, we'll be looking at volume two, part two today, which is a very long uh, section of the book exploring the question of mores. Um, and it kind of is the pinnacle of, of, of this section, building off the previous two sections. Um, part one of volume two was about intellectual culture. Um, part uh, two was about... Uh, like sentiments, and part three is on mores. So we're kind of moving from the high-level abstracted philosophy and art and culture then to kind of the day-to-day the -day beliefs of the common people in a democracy to social relations. So part three is really about social relations. And as we know, Tocqueville begins his whole book by talking about the equality of social relations. But it took him this long. We're over 600 pages into the book, and he hasn't yet really talked about what that equality of conditions in society means for the way society operates. And that's what he takes on in this part. The name of part three is called The Influence of Democracy on Mores Properly So-Called. It's a bit of an awkward name, at least in this translation, um, I think. But... Um, that's what it's about. It's about social relations mostly. Um, it's I, I find that it's there's basically like five parts. Yeah, five parts to this this part. Um, the first few chapters basically set up the context and the basic foundations. And this is what Tocqueville does throughout the book. He kind of sets the basic rules and principles that are going to then be applied to different questions. So he does that in the first few parts. Um, Kind of setting it up then he has a few chapters on work and the relations between people at work which as a labor historian that's a very interesting aspect of this of this book for me um, what what work means and what the relationship between bosses and, and and workers is i alluded to that in the last episode uh, then we have a section which is on family this is really the only part of the book where he talks about women talks about gender talks about uh, raising of girls family relations and all that so that's that's kind of distinctive in this part because it's really the only part in the book where he covers that question. Uh, then he has a section on uh, basically social interactions, generally speaking, manners, uh, kind of vanity, 
uh, the way people act, restlessness, you know, and this is one thing that people often think about when they think about Tocqueville is just this idea of this kind of the restless American dem dem democratic culture. And that's kind of laid out in that section. And that's four or five chapters. And then the then it, we end with a section really about war, war and peace, revolution, um, and, and really about war, what war will be like in democratic societies. Now, as always with Tocqueville, you know, you can look at this and say he predicts quite a lot, some things he doesn't get quite right. But what's really striking when anyone, I think when anyone reads Tocqueville is just how much he seems to get right about America as a foreigner. Um, and just how insightful this particular work of political theory is. Um, now remember, Tocqueville's ambition here is not really to write to Americans about, you know, about themselves. His real audience is aristocratic cultures in Europe coming to terms with democracy and coming to terms with raising democracy. And so he's always got this question in the back of his head is like, if this were to be applied in an aristocratic culture, what would it be like? So he's always comparing to France or England or, or other kind of Euro European cultures. And part four that we'll look at in the final part of this series, part four of volume two, it's a very short section, but it's all really about, you know, what's happening in, in Europe, rising democracy in, in monarchies. But we'll get to that next time. But just as always, there's a lot of contrast with aristocratic societies throughout part three, as it is throughout the entire book. Uh, so we come a long way, but we're nearing the end. So thanks for bearing with me. And as always, leave your comments about uh, what you think about Tocqueville um, below or send me an email. Um, I'll give you that email address at the end. So where do we start? We start with... Uh, this First of all, this, has, this section has a lot of chapters. It's 26 chapters. It's, it's fairly long. Um, a little bit... A little bit over 100 pages. Um, the basic idea in that first part I mentioned, the, the, the kind of the introduction of the basic concept, is that he thinks mores in general are going to be milder in democratic societies. And they're also more um, kind of uh, flatter, I guess, is the way to put that. That's true of everything, same with intellectual culture. And, um, you know, if you contrast it to what he says about the American mind. The American mind is flat and banal and mild, right? That's true of mores too. Mores are milder. You don't have extremes in behavior very much. And those and that leads to kind of a, an overall kind of respectfulness, an overall kind of uh, just mild, like mildness. You don't have these extremes in there. And why this is key is it's mores in America are not based on privilege and status as they are in aristocratic cultures, right? Where you're going to have big differences between like what is expected of an aristocrat and what's expected of a peasant, where nothing's expected, right? Take manners. Nothing's expected of a peasant in terms of manners. So they're more likely to go off and just do whatever they want, right? Um, except maybe in their relations with the uppers, so superiors. Aristocrats, they have very clear out rules about how they're supposed to behave and they know exactly how they're going to behave. That doesn't exist in America. So you just get mores based on mutual rights and, and kind of... Uh, what's acceptable to each other, and that's going to lead to that general banality, that general flattening of, of those mores. So that's what he sets out. Um, he thinks that the relations here are also very, very simple uh, in America. It's very, very simple relations. Again, you don't have these complex aristocratic connections, you know, where everything is kind of laid out by tradition and even law and, you know, there's a certain way you have to behave when you're with the landlord or the aristocrat, and the aristocrats have different ways of dealing with the king. All these elaborate procedures, none of this really exists. There's basically no real complexity to, to social relations. It's just kind of what was worked out among people on, on basically an equal footing. 
He writes, for instance, in a foreign country, two Americans are friends at once simply because they are Americans. No prejudice keeps them apart and their shared homeland draws them together. Identity of blood is not enough for two Englishmen. They need identity of rank to draw them together. Americans are full, as fully aware as we are of the unsociable attitude of the English towards other Englishmen and no less astonished by it. Yet the Americans are tied to the English by origin, religion, language, and in part by mores. The only difference is their social state. So this is an important quote because he's saying, you know, there's, now this is, I think, essentially wrong to say American culture is just a derivative of English culture, but just take that for granted that it's largely informed by England then why are mores so different? Well, it must be because of the social status. It can't be uh, because of culture, because that culture transformed, but it didn't, a lot of aspects of English uh, manners and morality and, and, and all that family structure doesn't get translated to the new world, and it must be because of the equality of conditions, his starting point for this whole work. Um, he, he has a, sh a short section, a chapter, it's chapter three, where he talks about why Americans are slow to take offense. He, he kind of makes this broad argument that Americans don't get offended very often by slights of manners or behavior, you know, but at the same time, if they do get offended, they tend to see it as a deep offense and will hold that offense really to the, to, to the end. And, you know, really relations can, can be broken. Again, in an aristocratic culture, there's more to get sensitive about, right? If you don't properly bow to your your superior, but you know, once that could be an offense, but once the apology is made, or once the proper you know atonement is made through rituals, then you move on with your life, right? Um, Americans aren't going to get offended about every little thing, but when they do get offended, it's usually something more extreme and more serious. And where Americans abroad will be most likely to get offended is when, like. American democracy itself is questioned, or American equality, or these broad principles become questioned, and that's that's more likely going to draw Americans to offense. Um, so, that's this is just a consequence of not having the ornamentation of tradition uh, as you do in aristocratic cultures. Um, and then he's got a little brief conclusion, uh, which is chapter four, uh, actually quoted from that um, at the beginning. And one aspect of I think of mores that he talks about here is this overall kind of exposure of, of Americans. It has to do with kind of the broad public nature of society. Everyone's kind of in the public realm. Um, and it, and this is something he alluded to in the earlier sections as well, where because everyone's kind of on an equal footing, they really have a lot of, they stress personally their independence and they, they see that as very key. But at the same time, they're always consciously, consciously aware of their weakness, right? And so when uh, mores do create uncomfortable relations and, and situations is often due to the exposure of people's own weaknesses um, in in society right and this is something that's really a tension throughout this whole book is that that kind of restlessness right again in an aristocratic culture if you're a peasant you're a peasant because you're a peasant and there's nothing you can do about it really outside of maybe a grand revolution you're basically going to live die die be born live and die as a peasant and yeah, it's not, you could be the greatest, most creative, brilliant peasant around, but your status isn't going to change, right? So there's really no reason to take offense about that or be anxious about that. You know how you're going to end up, you know how your story is going to end if you're a, a European peasant. Yeah, same thing if you're an aristocrat, right? You, even if you, you know, do some bold political act, try to overthrow the government, you know, you'll still die an aristocrat, right? You'll still die with certain privileges and, and honors. In America, you know, there's too much social mobility. There, there's the rich can lose their wealth, and then you don't get that that kind of assumption of respect based on blood. 
So your failures, your offenses, if you, if you, do some, if you have bad manners, it's on you, right? If, if your mores are offensive, it's on you. If you're, if you're immoral, it's on you, right? This is going to be an issue with sexual relations as they're discussed in this book as well. So anyways, that's how he sets out this whole chapter on, this whole part on mores in the first four chapters. Basically, milder manners, uh, flatter manners, but manners that uh, can be deeply personal because they really get to the heart of people's um, uh, unstable and insecure situation in social relations. But at the same time, there's a lot of issues that may be really key in, aristocrat in aristocratic societies like the, the details of, of proper relations, formality and that, that's washed away in a democracy. So then we move to three chapters which are really about work. It's chapters five, six, and seven, and they're all, they're all essentially about work. And that's, this is all he really says about work, and I, I kind of wish he would have said a little bit more. But we get the main idea here in these chapters. Okay, what does it come down to? Well, you don't have a servant class or, or, or a master class the way you do in, in Europe. I mean, you might still have a boss, and he uses the term servant and master here. But you're not there by blood, you're there by choice, right? So there's that loss of obedience. And I, I think it's obvious to see. You probably knew that where this was going in labor relations. He doesn't get, there's this wonderful book called uh, Wages of Whiteness by David Rodiger, one of the better books about whiteness and, and race. I think it was written back in the 90s. Um, maybe is early back in the 80s. One of the first books on whiteness studies uh, in history. And he talks about the terminology in democracies. How like you replace the word master with boss. Of course, the word master still has a lot of meaning in the South. If you're a slave, right? It, it's, you know, it's key to your social relations, who your master is. Um, but that doesn't exist for white workers, so they replace the word with boss, right? And he gives goes through other like linguistic changes that kind of separate American workers from the the, the the language of hierarchy and the language of status. Tocqueville doesn't quite connect it to slavery. I don't think he does at all. He misses that point. But he gets he gets right that there really isn't a servant class. There isn't a master class. Um, again, in slavery there is, but. Um, uh, among these whites that, that Tocqueville, white men that Tocqueville's talking about, there's no natural inferiority. So if you could take a job as even as a domestic servant, right, or your wage labor on a farm or something, you're there by choice, right? There's no natural division that's dividing them up. So um, democracy basically means there's no true relations between masters and servants, and they got that same kind of flattening. And what impact does this have on labor? Well, one thing it does is it makes the labor market more fluid and, and flexible, that people will work for a while for someone, they'll go work for someone else. If they get offended, they'll just take a new job, right? Or they'll be able to complain. And that creates a more liquidity in the labor market. You're not going to have a, someone's a butler for life, right? Like, you know, like Alfred and Wayne Manor. Like, that kind of thing is, is kind of unheard of in, in America. You just have that a more flexible and loose relationship between them. You are going to have differences of wealth. That's why you have people working for others. But it doesn't translate into social divisions. Oh, wait, just, just looking at this, he's got one sentence about slavery. He just says, in the South of the Union, slavery exists. What I have just said there is, is in, inapplicable there. Um, so that's all he says about slavery in this section. Um, I mean, th this quote's great, though. This is on page 677. 
In that moment, servants glimpse a confused and incomplete image of equality in their mind's eyes. At first, they cannot make out whether the equality to which they are entitled lies within the estate of domestic servants or outside of it. And deep in their hearts, they rebel against an inferiority to which they have subjected themselves and from which they profit. They agree to serve and are ashamed to obey. They like the advantages of servitude, but not the master, or rather they are not certain of the master's role does not belong to them and are inclined to look upon the person who assumes command over them as an unjust usurper of their rights. Um, that's, that's really great. Um, so um, he actually finds this kind of revolutionary. He says the nature of work is going to, you're going to have bosses and workers. And that's, that's fundamentally not a democratic state. And he says it's potentially even revolutionary. This might help account for why the American labor history and labor conflict is so, was so violent um, throughout, its, throughout its history. So that's the basic idea about labor. Um, then he kind of applies this to what's going to be the impact of this on the labor market itself. And um, one thing he says is, well, you're going to have generally shorter leases and higher rents and higher prices in general for, for rents. And this is just because Americans value mobility. So they're not going to live in a place and have a 10-year lease, right? They have the one-year lease or the six-month lease or the month-to-month -month lease. Um, but this leads to higher prices for rents. But this is something that Americans value because they, they do value mobility and social mobility more than they do um, the money, I guess, that they might save and the stability they might get from long-term employment. I, I think the connection here is that you can't, no one, once you hire someone, there's no guarantee they're going to be there next week or, or next month. And other social relations uh, are reflected in that, such as uh, the shortness of leases in, in America. This kind of lack of, lack of, um, of loyalty to, to employment, to place, to home. Right? Americans don't name their homes. That's one thing I thought of quite a few times reading this book is uh, aristocratic estates, rich people in, in England, they, they have their, their states are named, right? They have um, actual, those county states had, had actual names. That's very rare in America, right? Trump Tower or something like that. You know, buildings have, like buildings like that have names, but you know, usually people don't give their homes names, right? It's just an address. They don't have that kind of connection to it. The final chapter on, on what labor here deals with wages. And basically the argument he makes is uh, the labor market is going to lead to the gradual rise in, in wages because workers do feel this need to float around. And as people float around, they're going to take on, take on new jobs. So um, there is kind of a lofty a sense of self, lofty sense of self that workers embrace. They, they don't feel that they need to accept a crappy lifestyle just because that's all the bosses offer them. And now he does think there's a risk here and he thinks the risk that's going to happen, and he, 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 I think he predicted this right, is that Americans were going to have uh, flatter mass institutions of, of labor, like mass employment. He basically predicts mass employment here. It wasn't really around in, in the 1830s, but he saw that you're going to move towards mass employment, and he thought this might have uh, some negative consequences. He says, the number of workers they employ is very large and increased, increases constantly. Now and then there are periods of extraordinary prosperity during which wages rise inordinately, luring surrounding populations into manufacturing. Once a man has embarked on such a career, he's unlikely, as we had seen, that he'll be able to leave it because he'll soon acquire habits of body and mind that render it unfit for any other kind of labor. Now, I would add to what he says here, it also, you get tied to rising wages. If your wages are going up, you know, you increase your lifestyle to match that, right? You, you upgrade to a bigger house, a better car, 
we started to think, well, I'm going to send my kids to school, so I need to save for that. And that kind of locks you in. It's not just about the habits of work. Of course, scientific management is kind of hinted at here, but it's beyond that in, in that you get the kind of locked into it. So that's going to be a, a pull against that, that overall restlessness of the labor market. Okay, jumping to family. So families discussed in chapters uh, 8 through 12, essentially. So this deals with all the issues of gender relations of family and, and women. Um, so it kind of, he kind of lumps all these issues together under the family. Um, and where is he starting? His starting point is the man. His, and he starts with the father. And he says, basically, the power of the father is lessened. And we have already know why. If you've read this book carefully, you know why the power of the father is lessened in a democratic society. And it's rooted in the fact that you have, uh, there's, there's, land is divided universally among the children. Um, so you don't have this, uh, the primogeniture. Primogeniture seems to promote the power of the father. The father can decide who's going to inherit. Uh, what happens to his kids, right? An American child, he knows he's going to get a slice of his father's uh, land. That's part of it. But of course, you got general democracy too. So you don't, you're not going to have the same kind of aristocratic family structure. You wouldn't expect that. Um, so the lesson power of the father is key. And, um, it's, but what replaces it? It doesn't mean that families are weak in America what he, in, in, or in democracies in general. What he says instead was you have is tighter natural bonds, um, a stronger a connection between people based on affection, mutual interest, love, if you want, you know, companionship, families and relationships. So the father becomes um, a, a loving figure instead of an authoritarian figure. That's his starting point, And everything kind of flows from from there. So then he Tocqueville talks about the raising of girls. That's chapter nine. Um, and basically, girls are freer. Um, they're because they're going to marry for love, so they also become more aware of, of of social relations earlier in life, right? They can't. It's not just like an arranged marriage or a marriage for property transactions. Marriage becomes uh, more companionate. Therefore, girls need to be prepared for that, and girls therefore are raised to be freer, and they're more likely to have passions of the heart driving their decisions of who they're going to be with and their their um, their choices. So that's going to really be the heart of the difference between aristocratic societies and democratic societies in terms of the raising of girls. Um, he sees a bit of danger here. He writes, I am aware that such an upbringing is not without danger. I'm also aware that it tends to develop judgment at the expense of imagination and to make women respectful and cold rather than tender wives and amiable companions of men. Although society is more tranquil and better regulated as a result, private life often has fewer charms. But these are secondary ills, which ought to be brave for the sake of greater interest. At this point, no choice remains. A democratic upbringing is necessary to protect women from the perils of which the institutions and mores of democracy surround them. End quote. So yeah, you need to pre prepare women, prepare girls for life. But then they become a little bit uh, maybe overly practical, less sentimental about their relationships. And does this seem to contradict the, the idea that you're going to have more companionship relationships um, in, a, in a democratic society? Maybe, but I think these are really talking about different things. One is um, girls in a democratic society are going to be more well prepared for what's out there um, in the way they're raised. They're not going to be as drawn by sentiment and love and, and affection. So they're going to, there's going to be a, that's going to lead to a practicality to it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the bonds of marriage are going to be not based on, on, on love. It's just going to, there's going to be a more practical foundation to that. But he does see the danger of a, maybe like a little bit of coldness, 
or over practicality in that. But uh, you know, it's if you read like Mary Wollstonecraft, this is exactly what she feared about marriage: is that marriages would be overly sentimentalized and and affection would kind of take off in that in in among them. Um, chapter 10 kind of extends this, talking about uh, how the traits of the girl can be identified in the wife. And what he sees here is just a greater maturity of, of, of wives. And this is really important because in a democratic society, you're going to have those ups and downs of, of prosperity, right? There's, again, the aristocratic wife knows she's going to be rich, knows she doesn't have to worry. The peasant wife knows she's going to be a peasant, kind of doesn't have to worry. At least not worry about her status. You might have to worry about the famine or the army coming through or something like that. But she's not going to have to worry about whether the family fortune is going to be lost or gained, you know, through some innovation. The American wife will have to bear these ups and downs, partially because she is separated from the economy. So she's going to be at home, kind of dealing with the consequences of what her husband does. So the ability to suffer the ups and downs of wealth is key, to, and that requires a more maturity of the wife, and he sees that being translated from the raising of girls. Um, chapter 11 then explores the question of, mor of morals, and he doesn't you know, directly talk about sexual morality, um, but it's partially hinted at here. What is the, the moral uh, relationship between men and women? And the first thing he does in this chapter is he rejects environmentalism. And he's already done this in this chapter, this part, when he says, you know, things from England don't translate to America in every way, mores. So that means there's something about democracy. It's not just about culture. He also here rejects environmentalism. So I think there was an idea floating around Europe at the time that morals are better in colder climates and warmer climates morals are, are, are weaker. So like chasteness is increases the closer you get to the poles. And, you know, I think some of this is kind of racist, imperialist language, right? So Europeans went to like the equator, went to sub-Saharan Africa, these warmer climates or saw New World people. And they, they had different ideas about marriage. And these Europeans just assumed they were amoral or immoral in their sexual relations. Um, Diderot finally makes that argument in his uh, very important um what is the supplement to the journeys of Bougainville, where he kind of talks, he makes the point that morals are going to be diverse. It's one of the, the better Enlightenment era essays on, on moral subjectivity. So he rejects yeah, environmentalism here. Um, so instead, obviously, he sees it as key to the quality of conditions. And he thinks equality promotes morality. And it promotes more egalitarian relationships. Basically, that's his, his point. And this is back to his core point that the mores in democracies are going to be milder and they're also going to be flatter. More people are going to share them. And what really matters is how people look and how people see you and, and, and your reputation. These things become more key. And therefore, that, does, that seems to promote good, good morals. Again, when you take contra contrasted to societies where your social role is determined by your how you're born, a caste system, you know, your morality is a product of your caste. So whether it's, it's you know, proper morality or not, it's, it's defined by your caste. And uh, that's especially true with women, right? If you're an aristocratic woman, there's a certain way you have to behave to get you, to, you know, you don't even have a choice in the matter, right? You're going to marry who your father tells you you're going to marry. You have to behave a certain way. And basically breaking that is not, is not allowed. If you're considered to be an amoral peasant or something, then you're going to have freer morals. 
of course, there's that kind of the self-regulation of morality in America that he's already talked about, and that's going to overall promote, uh, he thinks, an overall greater morality. Um, but it also promotes more egalitarian marriages. And he does have kind of a warning here for aristocratic cultures that will maybe will move to democracy uh, quite rapidly, that you're actually going to get kind of an anarchy of, of morality. Um, that, that doesn't seem to happen in, in America, though, because American Americans were more egalitarian from birth. Quality of relations came with the birth of the nation in the colonial period. Um, chapter 12 is just generally on this, the equality of men and women. Now, obviously, he's not talking here about social equality any more than he's talking about the social equality between the master and servant. Uh, instead, he's really talking here about moral equality and, and the idea that men and women are of equal value. And he sees that's an outproduct of, of uh, more egalitarian relationships, companionship, marriages, um, and the overall mores of a family is the equality of value between men and women. Not yet social value. So I think there's, a, there's good reasons to have feminist critiques of, of Tocqueville here. He's maybe a little bit too optimistic about that. Um, obviously, there's clear legal barriers to the equality between men and women. Women didn't have the same career opportunities. Um, there's all sorts of other kind of under-the-surface oppressions in, in the marriage. And I urge you to read um, J.G. Barker Benfield's book, Horrors of the Half-Known Life, which is heavily influenced by Tocqueville. And he deals with uh, the relationship between men and women in this very period. And he, you know, he goes a little bit deeper than Tocqueville does. Um, yeah. Actually, I think the book ostensibly is about gynecology. But he gets into the, the psychology of the family and, and relations between men and women. And he basically sees this, um, as I remember, it's the, the restlessness of, of men in a democratic society then kind of leads to sexism in, in relations between men and women. So he's less optimistic than Tocqueville is here. Um, all right, so that's what he says about family, and that's pretty much all he says about family in the entire book, unfortunately. Um, but certainly there's a lot we can extend from that and other, other research. The next kind of overall section of this deals generally with social relations and interactions, right? Manners, I guess, is the clearest way to think about it, but it has different functions. It's not just do you pick your teeth at the dinner table or something. It's it's beyond that. Um, now, one thing he notices right away is in America, you have a lot of small societies. People associate in individually in small groups freely, right? We already know that. He's talked about the tendency of Americans to form groups before, um, but this is really key to, to manners as well because people associate out of choice, not because of, of they have to, right? If, again, if you're in an aristocratic society and you have to go to a party, you have to associate with people because you're at an aristocratic party and you have to associate with them. It's, it's just who you're expected to be with. That doesn't exist in democracy. So manners, this actually will temper manners in a way because you don't want to be someone gross, right? You, you, the freeness of associations means uh, there, there has to be kind of a, a more mildness to these social relations. Uh, a little bit more politeness maybe, uh, a flattening of them, but it's because people associate on choice. Um, so he does talk about uh, manners, though, and he does worry that manners are a little bit too arbitrary and mobile in democratic society. It doesn't mean they're not there. There are manners, but those manners are, are too flexible, and there's not like a book. You can't have a book of American manners. It's, all, it's kind of more unwritten rules that come out of social relations and interactions 
you know, like Washington did write a book of manners, right? He translated it from the French or something. You know, that's more aristocratic idea, right? There's actually rules you, you engage in. You play certain roles. There's so many forks on the table, right? And you use this for work for this or that. I don't even know what to do when I go to these types of dinners. They have, play do those sometimes in China when you're invited to dinner and it's, it's awkward. And there's all kinds of manners here too. Um, you know, but I never really am comfortable knowing what they are. Uh, but, you know, th this is something Tocqueville doesn't like, I think. I think he somehow thinks manners are just a little bit, little bit too flexible in, in, in arbitrary in America. But again, it doesn't mean they're not there. They, they do exist because, again, people associate freely. So if, if you have no manners at all, you're going to end up friendless. He does make an interesting observation here that manners don't necessarily reflect to, to sentiments, um, which I guess he thinks doesn't exist in aristocratic cultures. I, I have a hard time believing that, you know, like someone so trained to, to, to have certain manners and behavior, uh, obviously is going to be maybe vulgar under the surface. Uh, but he writes, anyone who knows court life from the inside is well aware that the grandest of... Oh, sorry, this, this is about aristocratic cultures not in democratic cultures. Democratic cultures, you are going to get more of a, that's right, you're going to get more of a parallel between the sentiments and the manners that are expressed. A vulgar person is vulgar. But in the aristocratic cultures, the, this, the person with good manners may be very vulgar in his private life and in, in his behavior. Um, so it's, there's more deception based on manners in, in more hierarchical cultures. Um, uh, he talks about gravity. Gravity here, of course, is how serious Americans are. And he thinks Americans are more serious on the surface. They don't like this, what he calls, puerile entertainment. Um, but at the same time, they're quite rash. Um, so in their culture and their, their sentiments and their mores and what they like, they tend to be more modest and serious. But this leads to a bunch of to rashness. And this comes out of the fact that democratic people will have multiple goals. And they're always kind of searching for something, moving around a lot. And this leads to a problem of, of not really knowing how to act in every situation, right? Because um, there's just kind of this flex flexibility and mobility. And you're not like set in the same place and the same social relations all the time as you are in more hierarchical cultures. You're going to find yourself in many different situations where you often don't know how to act. And that's going to lead to... Uh, what he calls rashness here, but also it's kind of an infamiliarity with, with certain accepted mores and that, that kind of flexibility to that. It, it's kind of an interesting uh, contrast he sees. But at the same time, he thinks that there's, there's kind of a seriousness to, to Americans that's not necessarily reflected in their manners. Now tied to this is his, his overall feeling about um, uh, kind of the agitativeness, uh, the agitativeness of American society. Um, you know, just kind of this restless banality. I guess that's the language I'm going to use here. On the one hand, it's very an agitated society that's always in motion, but it's in motion for kind of silly and day-to-day and -day things, right? Like, um, you know, money, essentially what it comes down to. Basically, the only thing Americans can fight for is, is, is wealth because everything else is equal. And that's going to, basically it creates a restless banality. I think that's, that's it's not his language, but it's essentially what he means here. Quote, in a constituted and peaceful democracy such as that of the United States, where no one can enrich himself through war, public employment, or political confiscations, love of wealth steers men primarily towards industry. 
Now, industry through it often brings vast disorders and major disasters in its wake, cannot prosper without the aid of very regular habits and the long series of highly uniform small actions. The more energetic the passion, the more regular the habits, and the more uniform the actions. It is fair to say that what makes Americans so methodical is the very vehemence of their passions. This troubles their souls but organizes their lives. End quote. I mean, I, I'm trying to, like some of this stuff when I, when I read it and I think about it, I take it for granted that it makes sense. But I'm trying to imagine it from the point of view of an aristocratic society. I mean, they just got to see all sorts of contradictions here, right? Like Americans are, are moving around all the time, but at the same time, they seem very method-driven and direct, but also kind of boring, I guess. I, you know, like there's a kind of a lack of, and at the same time, there's a lack of refinement, but, uh, you know, maybe a kind of a lot of unwritten rules that an aristocratic culture couldn't really get their hands around. Um, you know, I, I think... You know, you'd almost need a time machine to to read this book from the point of view of someone from those cultures, or to be maybe from a more aristocratic culture, right? I mean, I don't know. I, I don't like those those kind of English novels from the eighteenth, nineteenth century. They don't really do anything for me, and and they just seem so class driven and static. That's one of the reasons I don't really care for them. So. Um, where does more, where does uh, right and wrong come from, right? He, he has a section here called on honor, and that's really the question he asked there. Like, where do where do values about right and wrong really come from then in a democracy? And these things are they're essentially extending from individuality. Um, so, uh, in in caste societies, the honor of a caste is a quote, a bizarre composite of notions peculiar to the nation and notions more peculiar still to the particular caste will grow as remote as one might imagine from the simple and general opinion of human, humankind. Having attained this extreme, let us climb back down. He means to democracy. Ranks mingle, privileges are abolished. The men who make up the nation revert to being similar and equal and their interests and needs become indistinguishable. So we all see the distinctive notions that each caste called honor vanish one by one. Honor now derives only from the peculiar needs of the nation itself. It represents its individuality among the peoples. Finally, if one were to come to a day when all the races coalesced and all the people of the world had the same interests and needs and no characteristic features any longer set them apart, then people would cease to ascribe any conceivable value to human actions altogether. Everyone would look to those actions in the same light. The general needs of mankind revealed by conscience to every man would be common measure. End quote. So what is right and wrong would, would come out of the common needs of, of, cult, of society in a democracy. Um, that's, that's the point here. Um, not the expectations of caste or status. Um, so after this, he's got two more things to say about social relations uh, broadly um, in this section. The first is that you, you don't really have the great ambition in America. And I, I think he's already said something similar to this earlier, maybe in the political, in the section on politics, that you know, everyone sort of wants public office. Everyone is striving for it. You're not going to get the great ambitious men, but instead what you get is a lot of petty ambitions, right? You get a lot of people seeking wealth, maybe, or seeking small office, um, seeking their five minutes of fame, but you don't get the, like, the grand ambitions, right? So again, flattening and kind of banality of, of democracy is, is what he sees there. Um, and that's, that's pretty much it. So that's his main ideas about social relations broadly. So we've looked at work. We've looked at the family, and we've looked kind of at the interactions between men in, in society, in manners, morality, uh, and that kind of stuff, vanity. 
And finally, we get to his thoughts about war, war and peace. And, and here, you know, I, I kind of struggled with these sections a little bit. Now, he starts out by saying, well, one thing you're not going to have to worry about in a democracy are, are great revolutions, right? That although America derived from a revolution, you're not going to have revolutions, mostly because Americans are going to fear the impact of a revolution on their, on their life, right? I would also add here that the, the equality of conditions have already been achieved, and at least among white men, where you have great revolutions or things we want to call great revolutions. And I think he's here to think of like the political men on the street, barricades kind of thing. But still, where do you have the great transformative moments in, in American history? You know, the Civil War, right, which ex the goal of that was to extend democracy to black people. The Progressive Era, where you have anxiety about social relations and class divisions, and that creates kind of a revolutionary climate in some sectors. Um, the Civil Rights Movement, the, you know, the, the 60s revolutions, all these things were about increasingly flattening, like making true democracy to more people. and. Now, I don't think that's really what he means here by revolution. He's, I think he is talking about the men on the street uh, type, of, type, type of revolution, overthrowing the government. Now, that obviously doesn't happen. And doesn't, it doesn't mean there's not revolutionary change, but still there's kind of an overall fear of radicalism, I, I think. And I think that's true in democracies, right? Because um, there's always this anxiety about what we can lose. And that runs throughout this whole book, especially part two, is the overall anxiety of Americans, this, this feeling of, of, of not really having a secure place in this world. And the fact that you might move up and down is totally due to your own abilities and luck. And that creates kind of a, a tightening in the stomach throughout it all. And of course, uh, you're not gonna have that kind of push for it. And something else he alluded to before is you don't have as much to gain, right? Let's say you have a revolution you need to become, you overthrow the government, you become president. Well, you're in a democracy, right? Your powers are limited anyways. This goes back to stuff he says in part one of the book. Or, or volume one of the book, you know, it's your, your. There's really no point in 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 risking all to become the head of the society, right? As it is in maybe a monarchy or uh, an authoritarian society. Um, so you're not going to have great revolutions, and you're just going to have this fear of radical change. Instead, you have a lot of petty domestic concerns that people bicker over and, and struggle about. Um, so you're not going to have the great internal civil wars. They're going to be pretty rare. Uh, just one. He didn't know that was coming, but uh, just, just one uh, happened in American. And I think that was a revolution. I think the civil war was a revolutionary moment. Um, now, as for peace and war, he, this is where I really kind of, I had to read it a couple times to fully understand what you're saying. Um, because there's a contradiction here. And, and basically that contradiction is that society itself is going to avoid war and conflict. Uh, they see it as a danger to liberty and a danger to themselves and their own ambitions, right? I don't know if it could be a danger to equality necessarily, but it, they're, it's certainly going to be avoided. But he also thinks that the people who go into the military in a democracy are going to be from the lower class. They're going to tend to be less disciplined and they're going to be more restless. So they may want war. You're going to have a population of people in the army who are going to have that same restlessness that people in society broadly have. And the only way they can really manifest that restlessness in the army is through war. So the push for war is going to come from within the army itself or within the soldier class. Um, 
he does ask though, like in the in the military itself, which class is most warlike? And he says, well, the common soldiers are the most representative of society overall, and so they're going to be the most resistant to war because society doesn't want war, and the common soldier is of that society. Um, really, he sees it's the non-commissioned officers. Officers in general are going to be the ones who are going to be the most warlike in 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 a in a democratic army. They're going to be the most severed from that broader civil society. Quote, like the officer, the non-commissioned officer has his own mind severed all his ties to civil society. Like the officer, he has made the military his career. And even more than the officer, perhaps, he has turned all his desires in this one direction. But unlike the officer, he has not yet achieved a high and solid position where he might reasonably stop and breathe more easily while waiting for their advancement. Um, so if you're this non-commissioned officer, if you're an officer, you're already on the track, right? So you've already kind of reached some stability, some position. If you're the common soldier, you're just of society and, and you're kind of not, you know, your ambitions aren't really the military career. You're just there for a few years and then you'll leave. You're, it's like the same restless labor market you have across America. The non-commissioned officers who make the military their career but have a way to move up, they're going to find war the way to go up. So they're going to be the most warlike people. Um, but the common soldier's not necessarily going to be that way. Um, but how will democracies fight war when it happens? And what he says is that what you're going to have in a democracy is war starts out, it's going to be pretty bad. You're going to lose early on in the war. Um, but as war takes over de the democratic society, the longer you're in a war. So wars will then become the great project of that democratic culture, the great manifestation of, dem of democratic society. And therefore, the democracy will be almost unbeatable uh, the longer war is fought. Um, so it's short term, you're going to have defeats. Long term, uh, basically, when you, he's kind of predicting here almost a total war, and democracies would be more akin to embracing total war because it would be a way for them to put all their the pa passions of democratic society into a great project. He writes, when war becoming protracted finally rests all citizens from their peaceful labors and ruins their petty and Enterprises, the same passions that caused them to value peace so highly, turn towards arms. War having destroyed all industry itself becomes the great and sole industry. And all the ardent and ambitious desires born of equality are now focused exclusively on it in every quarter. This is why the same democratic nations that are so difficult to entice onto the battlefield sometimes perform prodigious feats when at last someone succeeds in putting arms into their hands. And he warns aristocratic cultures not to take democracies too lightly just because you know, you can beat them in a few battles. The long-term war will be um, difficult. It'll be difficult to defeat a democracy. And just look at World War One, right? When you have, maybe that's the, Europe's first real democratic armies. Um, you know, long, bloody, drawn-out wars involving all of society. Civil war in America, World War Two in America. These are these are conflicts that are driven by democratic armies. And again, they were long drawn out affairs involving the total mobilization of, of society. Um, it's got a short section here on discipline in democratic armies. And basically, you're going to get discipline not based on rules, but based on habits. Um, you know, I don't know if that's still the case in the army, but he thought at the time, discipline is going to be a product of, of habits more than it is hierarchical relationships between officers and soldiers. Um, and his final chapter in part three, is uh, his overall remarks. And basically he concludes in democracies, wars are gonna be great and rare um, instead of often uh, common and, and kind of minor as he sees them in Europe. So um, 
Certainly, I think he must be thinking about the Napoleonic Wars in part when he when he makes some of these comments. Um, so that's it. That's uh, part three of volume two of Democracy in America. Really, the core section of the book dealing with uh, democratic uh, mores and social relations and, and family and those kinds of things. Um, so what's left in the book? There's really not that much. I, I think part four of volume two is only eight chapters and it's only um, 50 pages or so. I got Tocqueville's notes, but I'm not going to read them. I'm not going to deal with them. I'm just going to skip it. I hope you forgive me. Um, so they just don't look that interesting. They're just details. They might be relevant to a researcher, but I'll just acknowledge that they're there, but I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to go through the book itself. Um, and what part four deals with is a lot of it is, is asking questions about the democratic transition in aristocratic cultures. Uh, it really kind of serves as a conclusion. And what it does is it takes everything out in part two, the mores, the intellectual culture, uh, sentiments, and it kind of goes back to the political question. So it kind of makes the book a whole circle. So we start out equality of conditions, and then the political narrative, political democracy. And then we get in volume two, mores, sentiments, and actually how democratic cultures and societies exist in, in the actual interactions between people. But then he kind of feeds it back to say, you know, how does this go back to the political culture? And then he kind of kind of his general conclusion. It won't take me long to go through it, but I will try to give my overall thoughts about um, Alexis Tocqueville's Democracy in America uh, in that episode. Then I'll talk about what we're going to do next in the series. But for now, let me know what you think about this section of Alexis de Tocqueville's um, account of America. Uh, is there anything I missed, anything I misinterpreted, anything you think uh, is open to uh, a broader conversation? Uh, I'll open the door to anything you want to talk about um, in regards to this work. Leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, thank you always for listening and join me next time when we'll complete our our series on Lock democracy my baby when you awake you will discover old tip is a fake far from the battle a war cry and drum he sits in his cabin drinking bad rum